the Pew Bible as we hear the reading of God's Word this morning, number page number 889 in your Pew Bibles, John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church from the book of John, verses 4, chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his holy word. I have an introduction to the sermon that is... um, tangentially um, concerned with the sermon. I just, I've been praying as I've been listening to our culture. It seems as if the gloves are off. It seems as if there is a very concentrated uh, effort to um, to discredit uh, Christianity and uh, push it aggressively into a corner. And so I thought of an, uh, that I wanted to uh, address uh, or at least push back some to encourage you. And um, you'll see how the introduction uh, ties in with the sermon. But it is uh, much... Uh, less so than you would be used to. Let's pray. Father, I ask in all humility, yet in boldness, that Your Holy Spirit would work in every one of our hearts. Help us to give our utmost attention to Your Holy Word. And I pray that Your Spirit would work inside us, that we would not be hearers only, but doers of the Word, so showing ourselves to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. 
The theory of evolution has been considered settled science by Western culture for some three generations. Christians and even non-Christian scientists have been pointing out the great flaws in evolutionary theory ever since Charles Darwin wrote his Origin of the Species. But evolutionary scientists have just brushed those objections aside without, uh, in my opinion, uh, honestly addressing them. But a new challenge has arisen that has already begun to discredit the theory of evolution and it is doing so within the evolutionary scientific community itself. This new challenge uh, is the discoveries being made in our own DNA code. Our DNA stores the detailed instructions for assembling proteins. And this information stored in our, D- in our DNA is very orderly. This orderliness flies in the face of Darwinian evolution, which says that all living beings have evolved by natural processes through mutation and through natural selection. In other words, Darwinian evolution depends on random mutations to accidentally bring order. But science has now found that there is, within our smallest cells, orderliness and sophistication that far surpasses anything that we are able to create by our own efforts. With all our technology, with all our computerization, we are not able to to, uh, create anything that approaches the sophistication, the orderliness that we have within our own bodies, in our DNA. In fact, Bill Gates, the CEO of Microsoft, has said, DNA is like a software program, only much more complex than anything we've ever devised. Mario Sajelic asks a question that goes right to the heart of the issue. His question is this, Can you imagine something more intricate than the most complex program running on a supercomputer being devised by accident through evolution? No matter how much time, no matter how many mutations, or how much natural selection are taken into account? And even more to the point, the information contained in DNA is, is not just highly organized, It is very complex and specific information. This information contained in our human DNA is more orderly and far more complex than any human technological uh, invention. It means that, of course, we did not evolve from mutations. We are not here uh, by accident. We are not who we are by accident. So then how will modern science replace Darwinian evolution? This is my own speculations at this point. Uh, I believe that they've already begun the process of um, replacing Darwinian evolution because it is imploding on itself. Uh, The leading scientists are now saying that we came into existence on Earth 
through extraterrestrial aliens. Over the next generation, you're going to see more sitcoms and more movies and books about aliens visiting Earth as um, our culture prepares us to adopt a new theory for our existence. So that's my prediction. Probably take three more generations for that to come to pass, and so I won't be held accountable for it, except for maybe some of our youngest children may remember and say, well, that pastor, he was all wrong. Anyway, my point for the sermon this morning is that it takes more faith to believe in in the scientific explanation for our existence than it does for a Christian to trust the biblical explanation for our existence. There's a lot more evidence for the biblical view of creation. There's a lot more evidence for the biblical view of who we are and how we got here than the scientific evolutionary view. Modern science, in other words, exercises faith, even if they refuse to admit it. And of course, their faith does not save them. And now I transition into um, what I wanted to look at, what we are going to look at from God's Word. There are many examples of faith that does not save a person. This morning I want us to examine some types of faith that we as Christians sometimes mistake uh, for true saving faith. And then I want us to examine authentic saving faith. I can imagine it might sound uh, odd to you for me to say that there are types of faith that do not save. But the Bible even says that there are types of faith that do not save. In fact, the Bible warns us to make sure our faith is authentic. Listen to James chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. James says, Someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. In other words, James is saying that demons have faith but are not saved. And James's point to us is that we must make sure, we must take care, lest any of us be found to have a false faith as well. The first type of faith we're going to examine this morning is a desperate faith. And here's what's happening. Jesus, uh, after spending two days in Samaria, we've been looking at uh, Jesus in Samaria with the woman at the well. And for those of you who are visiting, we're working our way through the Gospel of John. So he'd been in Samaria. He stayed an extra two days. And then he went on and uh, came to Galilee. And that was where he was going in the first place. He came to a town in Galilee where he performed his first miracle. Of course, that would be the town of Cana where he turned the water into wine. And everyone is excited when they notice that Jesus is in town. They surely had heard about his first miracle. But also the Bible tells us that they had come down to Jerusalem. That they were in Jerusalem when Jesus, John chapter 2, overturned the tables, cleared out the temple, and then did all these miracles uh, there during the religious feast in Jerusalem. 
He healed many of the sick. And so uh, the people are excited. Jesus is in town. But in the midst of their excitement, a royal official desperately approached Jesus. And the reason why he uh, has sought out Jesus is because his son is gravely, even um, deathly ill. Uh, this, this official, this royal official, had come from Capernaum, which was about 20 miles away from Cana. And so his son did not make the trip. His son, son stayed behind in Capernaum. I've been with several families in pediatric ICUs. Um, some of you may remember the one Sunday that, uh, that the McMasters came uh, six or seven years ago uh, with Carly, and she had brain cancer. She's since died. And um, I, was, I was with them. I remember when my son, Will, uh, was really young, and uh, he was very sick, and I had to take him to the uh, ER. And I was uh, driving down Hitchcock Parkway in Aiken well over 100 miles per hour because I was so desperate to get him to the emergency room and get him the care that he needed. And it, it, the original Greek makes it clear that this royal official is desperate that his son receive attention. And so he goes to Jesus. He pleads and he begs over and over. Jesus, come to Capernaum and heal my son. You as parents, I know that you can sympathize with his emotions. And Jesus' response, however, is not what we would expect. It's actually the opposite of what we would expect. Look at verse 48. Verse 48, when this man makes this impassioned plea to Jesus, Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It almost seems as if Jesus turns a cold uh, shoulder to this desperate father. It almost seems harsh for Jesus to say this to this grieving father. But the father is undeterred, as I think any father would be. And he kept on asking, repeatedly saying, Sir, come down before my, my child dies. Why did Jesus speak so harshly to him? Verse 48 is, um, is a rebuke. It's a rebuke, I think, to the Father. I think it's a rebuke also to the crowds that are out there. Oh, we get to see a miracle. And he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The reason why Jesus is giving a rebuke here is because a desperate faith is not a true faith. Remember the time that Jesus was asleep in the boat and a storm uh, blew up on the lake? Listen closely to Matthew chapter 8. Uh, when, when Jesus got into the boat, His disciples followed Him. And behold, a, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But He was asleep. And they went and woke Him saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And He said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? 
Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. What did the disciples do? Well, they went to the right place. They went to Jesus. And they said, Lord, save us. What's wrong with that? Why would Jesus rebuke them? They were lacking. Uh, he rebuked them for their lack of faith. They went to Jesus in desperation. Desperation is not faith. Desperation may initially drive a person to God, but if we don't learn to, to lean upon Him, if we don't learn to rest in Him, it is not a saving faith. The second type of false faith is a seeing faith. This is also clear from verse 48. Again, Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And He's rebuking them. Hebrews 11.1 1. I bet many of you have it committed to memory by heart or at least can say part of it. Faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Jesus is preparing to tell this Father that He's not going to go with Him to Capernaum. Jesus did not want... Um, Jesus did not want to be with the royal's uh, official son, or rather Jesus was not going to be with the royal official son when he came to heal him, or when he healed his son. So the father is going to have to simply trust in Jesus' word. There's a lot of so-called believers who will trust God only as far as they can see how he's going to do something. If they can't see how God is going to work it out, humanly speaking, well, they don't have faith for that. Remember in Genesis how God would, would put these expectations on Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Abraham, go and sacrifice your son. How is there any human way out of that? Or um, Isaac, Isaac, do not leave the promised land, even though there is a um, a, a, a drought, a, a tremendous drought. Do not leave the promised land. Don't go down to Egypt, even though the people of the of of Canaan are going to be quarreling with you. Don't leave. And Abraham saw no way out. Isaac saw no way out, and yet God required them to trust in Him. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Many of us, we trust God when we can see a way out. Sometimes we won't step out in faith unless we can see the next step. But is that faith? Test your faith. See if your faith is a seeing faith or an authentic, trusting faith. And so, we've looked at a couple of examples of an inauthentic, a false faith. What is an authentic, 
trusting, saving faith. Well, we're going to see that the father of this sick child moved from a from a false faith to a saving faith. And then what are the characteristics uh, of his faith that have changed? Well, first of all, his faith in verse 50 becomes a transferring faith. Look at verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The father began to finally look away from himself, look away from his pleading, and began to look to Christ. His faith was transferred from his pleading, his faith was transferred to Christ. By necessity, all saving faith, all true faith is a transferring faith. Your salvation was purchased on the cross 2,000 years ago. You weren't there. Christ did everything needed for your salvation. You were not personally, um, or rather, you were not physically present there 2,000 years ago. Even if you were there, what could you have contributed to what Christ did on the cross? Absolutely nothing. Christ did it all. Saving faith reaches out and embraces Jesus Christ. And when we embrace Christ by faith, He transfers all the benefits of His saving, finished work that He did upon the cross. And He transfers it to us. We transfer our faith to Him. He transfers His benefits to us. And so a saving faith is a transferring faith. It's also a trusting faith. Again, look at verse 50. Uh, Jesus, after He said, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. What could the royal official do? Jesus refused to go with him. And what He did was He trusted Christ's Word. Jesus said, Go, your son will be healed. He trusted in Christ's Word. He stopped His pleading and His begging and He he rested in Christ's promise. I like reading the 17th century Puritans. And uh, they like to speak of trusting Christ by using the word recumbence. Recumbence means lying back. It means resting or leaning upon an object. We have recumbent bikes um, where all our weight is lying back uh, while we pedal. Uh, The stationary recumbent bike at the YMCA is my favorite um, cardio equipment. The, The idea of being in a position of rest, almost laying down while I'm doing my exercise, that appeals to me. <laughs> um, running and all that other stuff, not so much. Trusting Christ means resting entirely upon Him. A trusting faith means that we will lean upon Christ with all our weight. First Peter 5 Uh, Verse 7 says, Cast all your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. The royal official rested in Christ and went on his way. And this points to a related aspect of saving faith. Uh, You must have an obedient faith for your faith to be authentic. The desperate father 
stopped his pleading and he obeyed Jesus' instruction and uh, returned home. Many people believe in Jesus and they will believe in Him and obey Him as far as it suits, uh, as far as it suits them. When the obedience becomes uh, too inconvenient or when it clashes too greatly with their desires, then their obedience becomes optional. Randy Pope calls this a selective obedience. Selective obedience is false faith. John, uh, or Jesus said in John verses 14, chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's nothing selective about that. Nothing optional about that. You love Jesus. I'm not asking if you feel like you love Jesus. I'm not asking if you think you love Jesus. I am asking, do you love Jesus Christ? Well, how do I know? John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. It's not a perfect obedience, because no one is perfectly obedient. But you will desire perfect obedience, and your sins will break your heart. Do you love Jesus Christ? Are you obeying His commandments? And the last aspect of faith, um, that saves is a faith that is personal. The royal official was not simply putting his trust in a set of religious propositions. His faith was authentic because he entrusted himself, he entrusted his child's life to the person of Jesus Christ. Likewise, our faith must be personal and relational. It must be a living faith with Jesus Christ Himself. Some, this week, someone called me because they knew I was a pastor. They called me a person of faith. And I'm like, what is a person of faith? That, that doesn't even, I don't even know what that means. And I know what they were trying to say. You know, I'm a preacher. I'm supposed to have faith. I want to be a person that has a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because that is the essence of true faith. A person of faith. It's meaningless. Do you have a personal, relational trust in Jesus Christ? Jesus never simply tells us to believe some facts about Him. Now, we're supposed to believe the right things about Christ, but He wants us to entrust ourselves to Him. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to Me! All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Faith is not simply belief in some religious facts. I want to make two applications. First, if you have found this morning that you have an inauthentic or false faith, I call upon you to come to Jesus right now. Don't try and fix your faith. Come to Jesus right now just as you are. Cry out to Him in your heart and He will give you saving faith. And if you've never come to Christ, come now. Don't hesitate. Trust Him completely. Trust Him quickly. 
even as quickly as that royal official. One moment begging and pleading in desperation, the next moment resting and trusting and obeying Jesus Christ as His Savior. And then finally, I want to say a word more about desperation and fear in the Christian life. God will send uh, tremendous suffering and painful trials into our lives. Uh, So we will all have those moments of desperation. We'll all have those moments of fear. But I want to remind you, when God is sending those times into your life, sending those trials um, to you, He will care for you all the way through the difficulty, trusting, trusting even when it's most difficult. Tom Landry, the coach of the Dallas Cowboys in the 1970s and 80s, once said, the job of a coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they really want. This is what God wants for us as well. He puts us through circumstances that we simply do not want to go through. He makes us face things that we do not want to face. But He does so to strengthen our faith, to make us more like Jesus Christ, which is what we really want. Trust Him. He is at work in you. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that You would help each one of us distinguish between um, false, inauthentic faith and true, saving faith. And Lord, I ask that You help each one of us to embrace Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our King, as our Lord. And Father, help us to remember that because it is a personal faith, He will never leave us or forsake us even when we are going through the the most difficult trials in life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.